Today we're going to be looking at chapter 16 of Revelation. Uh, this chapter includes what are called the seven bold judgments. Before we jump into it, let's uh, pause though and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, as we look to you and we look at your word, we ask you to give us understanding. We ask you that you would enlighten us. We're reminded again that your spirit is the one that could lead us into all truth. And so we ask you to help us. And we desire, O oh Lord, that these things we study would uh, impact how we live our lives, that we would just not desire to know things, but that we would, we would live in a way that reflects the reality of the things we'll be studying. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Before I jump into chapter 16, uh, some people have wondered how to get questions answered related to this study. And so if you have a question that you'd like to ask me uh, that I can cover during one of the sessions, uh, I want to ask you to uh, send that question to ask at the ridge dot church. Ask at the ridge dot church. Uh, one of the questions I did receive recently uh, was a question related to whether or not it's possible for a Christian to inadvertently get the mark of the beast. Of course, we know from the book of Revelation that if someone receives the mark of the beast, that they, they cannot be saved at that point. That, that those who receive the mark of the beast will end up in hell, and that's very, very clear in the book of Revelation. And so there's some concern, well, could a Christian get the mark not realizing that it's the mark, or, or what would happen if the Antichrist forced you to get it? I mean, physically held you down and gave you the mark of the beast. Well, I don't believe that a Christian will receive the mark of the beast inadvertently at all. I think that when we get to this point in the timeline that Christians will know without a doubt what this is. And I think it'll be clear to everybody. Also, I don't think the Antichrist is going to want to force people to get the mark, at least physically force them to do so. He is going to force people to get it by making sure that they can't buy or sell goods or services without the mark. In other words, to buy food and other things, you're gonna have to show them your mark. And this is how he's gonna control people. But I think it's important to realize that what the Antichrist is looking for is for people that will sign up to be loyal to him. He doesn't wanna force people to do it in terms of physically holding them down or something like that. No, he is going to ask for allegiance and this mark is gonna be a sign of your allegiance to the Antichrist. And so that being the case, I think Christians then will immediately recognize it for what it is and any Christian who's truly a Christian who has the spirit of God in him or her, I think will recognize what this is and will not get the mark. Now for the rest of us, you know, if we all know people who are relatives or other people that, that do not know Christ, when this is introduced, if we are around, we'll want to make sure we warn them not to get the mark because it'll be very, a very serious thing. Now, we're gonna jump into the bold, what are called the bold judgments in Revelation chapter 16. And in our timeline, you remember in the book of Revelation, you have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And the first six seals, I think Christians are gonna go through for the most part. The seventh seal actually is the seven trumpets. And this begins the judgment of God. And then you come to the bold judgments, which is a continuation of the judgment of God upon the world. Now let me mention a few things about these bold judgments then. 
First of all, that these judgments are very similar to the trumpet judgments we already read about. In fact, some people in reading about these bold judgments have concluded that they're the same thing as the trumpet judgments, but I would disagree with that. Because if you look at the trumpet judgments, for example, one of the trumpet judgments was that a third of the ocean's water would turn to blood. But when you get to the bold judgments, you realize that all of the oceans, all of the rivers will turn to blood, 100%. This leads me to conclude that it's possible that these trumpet judgments were intended to be a warning on the earth. That perhaps they were giving people one last chance to turn to God and to realize things are happening, things are coming. And, and of course, we know that the vast majority will not respond to the trumpet judgments and therefore they're going to be subjected to these bull judgments. The second thing I want to mention about the bull judgments is that they are called plagues. And more and more as I read my Bible, when I look at something or hear something that reminds me of something else in the Bible, I turn there. When I think, for example, of the word plagues, my mind immediately goes to Egypt and I think of the plagues in Egypt, and I think that's where our minds should go. I think there's a direct connection here between what's gonna happen in the end days and what happened to the Egyptians, especially in terms of the rebirth of the nation of Israel, because you remember that the, the Egyptians endured these plagues, 10 plagues, and then at the 10th one, they let the Israelites leave, and this led to the birth of the nation of Israel. Well, a similar thing's gonna happen in the end times. God has preserved for himself 144,000 Jewish people, but before they will become a nation, the people of this world will undergo certain plagues. Third thing I want to note about these bowls or these plague judgments is that I think that they are intended, just like with Egypt, to prove the superiority of God over the gods of this world. We know that the plagues in the, in the book of Exodus were intended to knock down one after another of the gods of the Egyptians to prove that the Lord God is the only true God. And I think a similar thing is going to be happening to the world as in the last times where God is going to begin to judge the people of the world, but especially even the kingdom of the Antichrist. He's gonna demonstrate that he alone is God, that this man is not a God, and he's gonna demonstrate it through his amazing power. With that introduction in mind, I'd like to begin reading in Revelation 16 and verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image." Now, this particular plague, the plague of boils, is very similar to the sixth plague that we read about in Exodus, in Exodus 9, verses 8 through 11. In Exodus 9, Moses was told to take some soot from a furnace and toss it into the air, and it would turn into boils. In Exodus 9, 9, we read, it will become a fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. Now, I want you to note here that in this verse in Exodus, that the only ones who got the boils 
were the Egyptians. It was going over the land of the Egyptians. The people of God were spared this particular boil. What we just read in Revelation is that the people that are going to get these boils are gonna be the ones that get the mark of the beast. They're going to be only the unbelievers, any believers around at this time, as well as the 144,000 Jewish people, I think will be spared this. Now, I wanna remind you that a similar thing happened in Exodus. Most people are not aware of this, but you know there were 10, 10 plagues that the Egyptians went through Well, the Israelites were spared most of those plagues, but they had to endure the first three. The first plague, which was the Nile turning into blood or the water system turning into blood, this was something that affected Israel as well. The second plague was frogs. And the frogs spread throughout the land of Egypt. And so the Israelites experienced that as well. And then the third plague was gnats. But when you get to the fourth plague, God did something different. In Exodus chapter eight, verses 22 and 23, we read about the plague involving the flies. We read, but on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen where my people are living and no flies will be there. This way you will know that I, Yahweh, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. And so God was making it very, very clear to the Pharaoh that the plagues were from God and the fact that that the Israelites were gonna be spared this fourth plague, even though the flies would be everywhere in the land, they wouldn't impact the Israelites and none of the rest of the plagues would either. This was a sign that God was proving that these Israelites were his people. And in a similar sense, when the boils hit in the book of Revelation, only those who get the mark of the beast will be the ones who will get this particular plague. And in this way, it will be a statement to the whole world that the believers are right, that they are correct. Now going on to verse three, we read about the second and third bowl judgments. The second angel, and I'm supplying the word angel here, it's implied by the verse, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. It turned to blood like a dead man's, and all life in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the, river, and the springs of water, and they became blood. Of course, these two bowls, again, are like the first plague that took place in Egypt, where we read in Exodus 17, 20, and 21, Moses raised the staff and struck the water of the Nile and all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died. This is exactly what's gonna happen again in the last days. Now part of the reason that I think this happened in the book of Exodus is that it was intended to be prophetic. I think many of the Old Testament stories, and I've said this before, but I think many of the Old Testament stories are not just historical and true stories that took place in the past, but they're intended to be a picture of the future that you can look at some of these stories and you can learn some lessons about what's gonna happen in the future. One of them is, again, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel who are thrown into the fiery furnace and then Jesus appeared with them. Well, that's a sign for the end times, how God's gonna preserve his people and take care of them in the last days. Now, in Revelation 16, verses five through seven, we get a picture of why God 
turn the water into blood. And here we learn about the justice of God, that the things that God does are completely just and they make sense. God basically is going to be punishing people according to what they deserve. In Revelation 15, 5, we read, I heard the angel of the waters say, you are righteous who is and who was the Holy One. For you have decided these things because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You also gave them blood to drink. They deserve it. Then I heard someone in the alt- from the altar say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. God is just. Throughout history, people have shed the blood of God's people, whether it be the Jewish people or Christians. They have shed the blood of people. And of course, in the last days, there's gonna be an intense persecution against both the Jews and the Christians. And a lot of blood is going to be spilled. And so God in his judgment is gonna say, okay, fine. You wanted to spill all this blood. From now on, you're gonna drink blood. You're gonna get so much blood, you're gonna become sick of it. And it is the justice of God. Now we come to the fourth bowl in verses eight and nine. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. He was given the power to burn people with fire and people were burned by the intense heat. So they blasphemed the name of God who had the power over these plagues and they did not repent or give him glory. Now earlier in Revelation chapter eight, we read how the sun would cease from shining for a third of the day. And what this would cause, at least I presume, what this would cause is that the world would get intensely cold. When the sun was not shining, I would presume that it would cause a great coldness to take place. However, here, we're reading that the people are being burned by fire. And I take this to mean that the sun, in a sense, is going to be wearing out. And a third of it's gonna stop shining, and so every time it spins around, a third of the world's gonna be in this darkness. And I think coldness is gonna prevail, but another part of the sun is gonna get overheated for some reason. And again, maybe the crust is falling off. I don't know exactly, exactly how that works. But imagine for a moment that if the sun began to burn at a temperature on the earth of 150 degrees or 160 degrees, you could realize how horrible this would be. I see a world in which people don't wanna be outside when it's, it's nighttime because it's too cold and, and they don't wanna be out during the day because it's too hot. I imagine the strain on our electric system throughout the world, these are not going to be good times at all. And so you, you realize that when this happens then, we read that the people begin to blaspheme and rail against God instead of humbly, humbly repenting. And this again demonstrates that his judgments are right because we're gonna read this again and again in this chapter. That the people continually, with every judgment, they get angrier and angrier against God. And they're unwilling to change their ways. And by the way, I see some parallels in our culture today. I think people are getting more and more angry, but they refuse to turn from their wicked ways. And they get locked into this position of rebellion against God and therefore subjecting themselves to God's anger, God's wrath. The fifth judgment bowl is found in verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues because of their pain 
and blasphemed the God of heaven because their pains and their sores, yet they did not repent of their actions. And here we see it again. They're getting madder and madder again. Now, both the fourth and the fifth plagues that we just read about, these bold judgments, have to do with the sun. And this lines up somewhat with what took place during the ninth plague of the Egyptians. Of course, you remember that the Egyptians worshiped the sun god, Ra. And so this was an attack against that god. But I see also symbolism in both what happened to Egypt and what's going to happen in the future. Because in plunging the kingdom of Egypt as well as the kingdom of the Antichrist into darkness, this is a physical representation of the spiritual darkness that they're living under. Again, I think it's a picture. I think it's a sign. What's interesting about this plague we just read about, though, from the book of Revelation is that it says that the kingdom of the Antichrist is plunged into darkness. This suggests to me that maybe most of the world would not be plunged into the same darkness, but the kingdom of the Antichrist, this Babylonian kingdom, will be in darkness, and it'll be a sign to the whole world that that guy is darkness that he's the enemy of all that's good and all that's right. It'll kind of highlight that because I think only his kingdom will be thrust into darkness and maybe not the whole world. Now, this again happened in the Old Testament. In Exodus 10, 21 to 23, we read that the darkness only was in the part of Egypt where Pharaoh was. We read, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was a thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another and for three days they did not move from where they were. Yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. You see the distinction. The Israelites had light where they were, but the Egyptians didn't. We read about it in here in the Old Testament that it's a darkness that could be felt. Sometimes darkness can be felt. I remember one occasion in my own life and experience I had years ago where I was at a cabin and it literally was a cabin in the middle of nowhere. There were no cities anywhere nearby, no light anywhere nearby and it was a cloudy night and so it was completely dark. And at a certain point I walked out of this cabin and I didn't bring a flashlight with me but I walked a little distance from the cabin and then over a hill so that I couldn't see any of the lights in the cabin at, at all and suddenly I realized how dark it was. I literally held my hand in front of my face and I could not see my hand at all. I couldn't see my fingers one inch from my face and I realized, wow, this is a darkness that is just so, so heavy. And I realized if I didn't turn and go back immediately, the direction I'd come from, I could get lost. I would not be able to find my way back. And in the Old Testament, we read the Egyptians stayed where they were. They didn't even move from their houses because if you left, you wouldn't find your way back. It was so dark. And, this, and there was a darkness again that could be felt. Now, one thing I want to notice about these bowl judgments as well as the trumpet judgments is that in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, the judgments came one after another. So there'd be, for example, maybe the, the judgment of the flies and then the judgment of the frogs, you know. One would be there, then it would be done, and then the next one would start and it would be done and that kind of thing. But when we get to Revelation, we discover that they're cumulative in, fact, in effect. 
In other words, one thing happens and the next thing is added to it and the next thing is added to it. And so you realize from earlier in the book of Revelation, for example, we read about these demonic beings that come out of the earth and and they're able to sting people. Well, that's going to continue throughout this time. And when there's darkness, there's darkness. And when the boils come, they're going to deal with the darkness and the boils and the stinging of these creatures. And you realize it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Something else I'd like to note about some of these plagues, some of these signs. Some have noted that this is a foreshadowing of what hell is going to be like. Because hell, of course, is described as a place of fire, which we just read about people being burned from the heat, but it's also described as a place of darkness. And some have wondered, well, how can you have fire without darkness? Well, it's possible both are, are true. And then, and then so you got a place like hell that has fire and great darkness, and it's characterized by heat, and there's, there's no water there. Of course, the water in Revelation has been turned to blood. It's a place of pain and suffering. In the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 16, Jesus told a parable about a guy that was in Hades, which is a precursor to hell, And the guy called to Abraham and said, would you just dip your finger in water and touch my tongue because I'm so thirsty. I'm in such pain here. And I think this is what hell is gonna be like. But these plagues, these signs are a precursor to what is about to happen. This is why it's important that we make sure that people don't end up there, that they put their trust in Jesus Christ to be their savior. Now in verse 11 again, we read that despite all of these things happening, And despite the fact that they should have served to humble the people, break the people, to get them to kneel before God, instead, we find them cursing God, we find them blaspheming God, railing against God, and they refuse to submit to his his rules about things. They continue in their sinful ways. They refuse to repent. Then in verse 12, we come to the sixth bowl judgment. We read the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God the Almighty. Look, I'm coming like a thief, the one who's alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame is blessed. So they assemble them at a place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Of course, this is a reference to the battle of Armageddon. Now this judgment seems different than the other ones because this judgment involves just the drying up of a river and then you read about these kings from the east who are gonna cross the Euphrates River, and we know from other places in the Bible they're coming to surround Israel. And you'll say, well, in what sense is that a judgment or a bold judgment? Well, what these people do not realize is that those who are gathering for battle here are going to be fighting against Jesus himself and they are all going to die. This is a a leading them into a battle that's gonna lead to their deaths. Now here we read that these demonic beings, a demonic being comes out of each of the unholy trinity. I referred in previous weeks that in the last days there'll be an unholy trinity. There'll be the the, the devil will be at work 
and he's anti to God. There's going to be the Antichrist, a world leader who's anti to Christ, and then you're going to have the false prophet who is anti to the Holy Spirit. In this verse, we read that some demonic beings come out of each of them, one out of each of them. They look like frogs. They are, they are high-powered demons, and their job is to go throughout the world and rally together the kings and the rulers and the premiers and, and people from all over the world. They're going to have the ability to perform all kinds of miracles, and their, their goal is to assemble them together for one final world war. Now, the question can be raised, against whom are they waging war, though? Why are they coming to battle? And there are some possible explanations. It's possible that they're coming against Israel to wipe them off the planet once and for all, to just completely get rid of of Israel. And that's a possibility because, as I mentioned a moment ago, this battle does take place near Jerusalem. We do know that the armies of the world are going to surround Jerusalem in the last days, and they're going to attack the city. But there's another explanation that I think is more likely, and that is that they are coming actually to battle against the Antichrist and his kingdom. Now, this might seem counterintuitive. When you realize that the devil is the one that's inciting this, and you realize that the the, the demon actually came out of the Antichrist, why would a demon come out of the Antichrist to rally people to fight against him? But it's quite possible that they're going to be coming to rally against the Antichrist and his kingdom, but not realize that the Antichrist has another purpose in mind. That when they arrive, they're all going to be gathered for a final battle that's going to be against Jesus. Because ultimately, this is what this battle is about. But I don't believe that the armies that are being gathered in the battle of Armageddon are going to know about this. I think they're going to come to fight for one reason, and then they're going to be rallied together to fight initially against Jesus and his, the people that are with him. And, and this is something that, it, of course, I think the devil is behind, because you remember that there was another time in which Satan rebelled against God, and we believe that Satan rallied a third of the angels of heaven to join him, and they rebelled against God. And this happened before the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve were created. When I look at this event here, what this looks like is that Satan is going to use all of his angelic host, but now he has rallied all the armies of the world, people, to fight. And I think perhaps in his mind, he might be thinking, this time I'm going to win. I've got all of humanity here. I've got all the angels here. All of creation is fighting against Jesus. This is a battle If he thinks he can win, he's deceiving himself. Now, verse 12 indicated that uh, the battle is going to start with these kings from the east. The the Euphrates Rivers is going to be dried up, and and these kings are going to come from the east. There's been a lot of discussion about who these kings of the east are. Again, we read about this in Revelation 16, 12, the sixth poured out, or sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. I understand and have read that there are 50 different possible explanations as to who these kings of the east are. Some have suggested that they're the Asian Asian nations led by China, perhaps. Some have suggested that they're, they're a host of others. 
What's significant to me is that if you go north and east of where the Euphrates River is, you come to the countries of Iran and Iraq. <clears throat> and many feel like the final battle here might actually be a battle of Islamic nations against Israel, that they're going to be the primary group here. Let me show you, or you can look online at a map of the Euphrates River, and you will notice that it runs all the way through the country of Iraq. It just divides the country of Iraq, and to the right of that river is Iran, over to the right. You can, in fact, see in the corner of this map that we have for you, Tehran is in the corner all the way to the right there. And so you realize that these nations are coming from that direction. From my perspective then, what we're dealing with here is a battle involving Babylon. And of course, this kingdom in the book of Revelation is called Babylon as well. Uh, the kingdom of the Antichrist is the kingdom of Babylon. And so we, we learn a little bit about this battle that's coming against the nation again. Now, we don't know if they're all gathering just against what's left of Israel or whether or not they're gathering against the Antichrist and his kingdom. Uh, we don't know for sure what's happening there. But it does involve, it seems, these nations. It's interesting, by the way, uh, I read that a couple years ago in 2017, I think it was, Turkey blocked off part of the Euphrates River and kept it from flowing into Syria. He was doing it presumably to prop up the government of the Syrians, but you realize that the flow of this river could be stopped up north, and the Turkey government tried to do that. Now, I'd like to read uh, verses 14 through 16 again of Revelation 16 and make some more observations. We read, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. Notice, by the way, it's called the day of God, the day of the Almighty. In other words, this is a battle, as we're gonna see in a minute, that God is actually behind. But we continue reading, look, I'm coming like a thief. The one who is alert and remains closed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame is blessed. So they assembled them to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. He says here, right in the middle of this, I'm coming like a thief. Stay alert, make sure you're properly clothed. Who are the people that are referring to that are supposed to be alert? Well, I think this could be, first of all, at this point in the story, a warning to the whole world. Wake up, see what's happening, because we know that thieves come in the middle of the night and they catch people off guard. One encouraging thing for us is to realize that as Christians, we will not be caught off guard again. Paul talked about this same thing and used this same analogy in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4, where he wrote, but about the times and the seasons, brothers, you do not need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, which I think it's the world is saying that, then sudden destruction comes on them like labor pains come on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers, and this is the encouraging part, but you brothers are not in the dark for this day to overtake you like a thief. You brothers do not have to be caught off guard. You will be awake for this. You will see what's happening. Now, this warning again at this point in Revelation could be a warning that's meant to, 
Even though it was written in the past and it's speaking about events in the future, it's in the Bible today as a warning to the whole world to stay awake. It also could be a warning toward Christians in a little bit different sense. In 1 John 2.28, John wrote about being alert. He said, so now little children remain in him so that when he appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And this text implies to me that there are gonna be Christians in the last days who when Jesus returns, they're gonna shrink back at his arrival, that they're gonna be ashamed, that they're gonna be caught off guard. They'll be sleeping in a sense, and they're gonna regret how they were living their lives. I believe as we get close to the end times, the signs are gonna be abundant for the world to see. We need to be alert, we need to be awake. And so in one sense, I think this warning about staying alert, don't be caught off guard like a, like a thief would do. Make sure you're properly clothed and not ashamed when Christ comes back. I think the warning applies to all of us. But I wanna talk a little bit more about this battle of Armageddon. And the reason I wanna talk about this and, and we'll close in talking about this is that uh, this battle is talked about a lot throughout the pages of the Bible. There's a lot about this battle in the Old Testament. And so this is not the first time we're reading about it. Dr. Warren Wiersbe writes about Armageddon. The name Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words, Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, is what it means, the hill of Megiddo. The word Megiddo means place of troops or place of slaughter. It is also called the plain of Estrelon and the valley of Jezreel. The area is about 14 miles wide and 20 miles long and forms what Napoleon called the most natural battlefield of the whole earth. Standing on Mount Carmel and overlooking that great plain, you can well understand why it would be used for a gathering of the armies of the nations. Now again, this Battle is referred to throughout the Bible. Looking ahead to Revelation 19, 19, we read, then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse, which is Jesus, and against his army, which I think is us. And so again, we discover that for whatever reason, they're all gathering, which again, it could be attacking what was left of Israel, uh, or else it's against the kingdom of the Antichrist. Whatever reason they're coming, the ultimate purpose that Satan has for it is to fight against Jesus and, and will be with him. Now, one thing, by the way, just I want to mention here is that although I think we're accompanying Jesus on this battle, we're not going to have to fight. I think that in this battle, and we're going to see this in a minute, they're going to fight against each other that God is gonna defeat them without us having to even get involved with the battle. And I think that this battle, by the way, is what was referred to earlier when we read that the blood would flow for 180 miles. I think it's as a result of the battle of Armageddon that that scene is depicted earlier in Revelation in chapter 14. Now, again, there are a lot of verses about this in the Old Testament. In Joel 3 and verse 2, Joel 3, 2, we read, I will gather all the nations and take them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there because of my people, my 
inheritance. And so we see that God is the one that's gathering them together. I think this is, again, the same battle of, of Armageddon. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah, we read extensively about this. For example, we read in chapter 14, again, that God is the one ultimately behind this gathering. Uh, And what we learn from Zechariah is that initially, Jerusalem will be captured and harm will come to any Jews that are still living there. The ones that did not flee when they could have are going to suffer harm at this point. Now, I'd like to read Zechariah 14, and I know it's fairly long, verses 1 through 9, and I'm not going to take all the time to explain it, but you see a a picture of this moment when Jesus is going to come back at the Battle of Armageddon. We read, a day of the Lord is coming, Zechariah 14.1, when your plunder will be divided in your presence. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. So again, they're coming against Jerusalem, either against the Antichrist kingdom or against the Jews who live there. The city will be captured the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be removed from the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. Let me stop for a moment, but we know that this is Jesus. And we know this hasn't happened yet, where we read that Jesus is literally gonna stand on the Mount of Olives. And so we read on the date of the things we're reading about here in Zechariah, Jesus is gonna come back and stand on the Mount of Olives. And then we read, uh, the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley, so that half the mountains will move to the north and half to the south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azal. You'll flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. I think that's us. On that day, there will be no light. The sunlight and moonlight will diminish, which is, by the way, the thing that's going to allow them to escape, I think, whoever's left who can flee. Verse 7, it will be a day known only to Yahweh without day or night, but there'll be light at evening, which I'm not sure what that's describing. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it toward the eastern sea and half the other half toward the western sea in summer and winter alike. On that day, Yahweh will become king over all the earth, Yahweh alone and his name alone. And of course, we know again that this is referencing to Jesus coming back. Now let's continue in Revelation 16 and verse 17 as we wrap this up. We read, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne saying, it's done. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since man has been on the earth so great was the quake. The great city, which I think is Jerusalem, was split into three parts. Now, let me stop for a moment. This is, I think, the same earthquake that Zechariah was talking about. Zechariah referred to the fact that it split in two, allowing an escape route for the Jews that happened to be in Jerusalem. But now we learn here in Revelation that it also splits in a different place for a different reason that maybe God, that God knows. 
But let's keep reading here at verse 19. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave his cup, her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe. Notice that the people are still blaspheming God. Now again, this is what happens at the day of the battle of Armageddon. Jesus is coming to reign. We're reading about a river of living water. We read earlier about this river of living water. It's setting up Jesus' throne here. Ezekiel 38 describes the same event. And, and with this, I will close beginning in verse 19. We read, God says, I swear in my zeal and fiery rage on that day, there'll be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Just stop for a moment, but you realize now we've looked at three sections that all talk about the same earthquake. And you realize how tied together the whole Bible is. There's a great earthquake in where? It says in the land of Israel. It's the same thing we're reading about here in Revelation 16. The fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the animals of the field, every creature that crawls on the ground, and every human being on the face of the earth will tremble before me. The mountains will be thrown down. We just read about that. The cliffs will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him. The him here is probably the Antichrist. And on all my mountains, the declaration of the Lord, and every man's sword will be against his brother. I referred to the fact earlier that in the battle of Armageddon, I think this is what's gonna happen. This happened in the Old Testament on occasion where there was a battle that was to be fought, but before the Israelites entered into the battle, God set it up so that all the people killed themselves. Everybody killed the person next to them so that they all ended up dying, and this is what's gonna happen. Verse 22, I will execute judgment on him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour out torrential rain, hailstones, there it is, fire and brimstone on him as well as his troops and the many people who are with him. That's the people gathered at Armageddon. I'll display my greatness and holiness and will reveal myself in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Now, I realize we've covered a fair amount tonight. It's not a, a pretty sight. The, the reminder, though, I want to leave you with here again is this, though, that as Christians, we know how this thing is going to end. And as Christians, we want to be ready. This should impact, again, how we live our lives. But the second thing that is impressed on me every time I read this is the importance of making sure that the people I love don't have to go through this that they come to a point where they're put, they put their trust in Jesus Christ to be their savior because he alone is the hope of the world. And when all is said and done, this is the thing that defines everything. Either we're part of the kingdom of Christ and therefore we'll be with him and rule with him in this kingdom we're gonna read about in the future chapters or else we align ourselves with the Antichrist. We become among those who are blaspheming God and ones who are unwilling to repent of sin. Let's pray. Father, I again want to thank you that um, you've told us about these things and that we don't have to be unaware. And we do want these things to impact how we live our lives. And I ask you to give us a heart that would care about the spiritual condition of those in our world. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.